morning. That's a bit more like it. Okay. Welcome back to session two of this series on the early kings. Thank you for so many who've been in touch having accessed the podcast. Um, if you go onto the Meadgate Church website, there is a list at the top of downloads. Bob, this is a computer thing. You'll have to ask Anne what to do. <laughs> Sorry. Bob does not do computers. He prefers quills. Okay. Um, many of you have accessed that, which is fantastic. We have now the capacity to do the notes as well. So you can, if you miss one, you don't miss out on the notes. We are endeavouring to get them up as quickly as we possibly can. And again, my thanks to Richard for manning the knobs in a wonderful way. Okay, let's just pray. Sorry, I didn't mean the word just. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Keep our minds alert and our hearts open to what it is you want us to remember. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mobile phones should be off. I could say the next mobile phone I hear buys all the round of drinks. Would that be a good incentive? Okay. As last week, I want you to try and remember, or for those of you who weren't here, just one thing from this morning. In all of the things that we're going to have to share together, there's going to be at least one thing. Yes? And you should by now know where we're going to in the scriptures. We are going to the 1 Samuel. Yes? You should be in chapter 3. 1 Samuel, chapter 3. Now, As I said, we do not have YouTube films of much of what went on in the Bible. It would be incredibly useful, but we do have many, many paintings. That's a lovely one of the young child. 1 Samuel 3.1, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under who? Eli. Eli, one of our major characters. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now, in chapter 3, you know the story incredibly well. So I'm not going to dwell on this bit of it, of how Samuel wakes in the night, assumes that Eli is calling him, and Eli keeps sending him back. And on the second time of being disturbed from sleep, how many of you have ever been disturbed in sleep by children here? Okay. He suddenly realizes that this might actually be God. So he tells him to go back, and Samuel listens. But this is what Samuel hears. See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. I'm in verse 11 of chapter 3. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves, what? Contemptible. That's a strong word, isn't it? And he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli that guilt of Eli's house 
will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. What was Eli's job? He was a priest. What did priests offer? So to be told that whatever you do will never atone is an awesome thing. Yes? In fact, if you remember, um, in, at this point in Israel's history, they had the Day of Atonement, one day a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with great respect and reverence to plead for the nation once a year. At that point, God covered their sin. If you look at the word covered, that's a nice little mini-sermon for you somewhere. He covered their sin. It never took it away completely. It covered it. Until, of course, Jesus Christ. And we know from John the Baptist's first sight of his cousin coming towards him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who... Sorry, who what? takes away up until that point it was only ever covered but God is now saying to Eli whatever you do it can't even cover it anymore it's been so bad so this speech that God gives to Samuel is actually two major things one it's a confirmation of a word already spoken do you remember last week we talked about the man of God who gave the original judgment. This is a confirmation of that judgment. Yet we don't know if Samuel was witness to the first, but he's given a confirmation. Very often, God will use you to confirm something he's already said, which is wonderful. It gives Eli the realization that God really is speaking to Samuel, because I've heard this already before. My John says, if God says something once, it's important. If he says it twice, you better be listening. The other thing is, Samuel, and we don't know how old he was. We know he was older than three, because he came and he was weaned. Not yet bar mitzvah. So somewhere between three and 12. He's been in the temple a couple of years. Probably seven or eight. I would say that's a pretty reasonable guess. He had no idea that this night was technically the first day of his new job. I wonder how many of you have gone in for new jobs and shaken in your boots. How do you survive the first day? Me, if I'd known that God was going to ask me to be a prophet, I'd have wanted a really little one and a nice one. Yes? Not a word of death and condemnation over my boss. It's a tough word. What did he do with it? Well, <laughs> on screen we have a gentleman on his pillow, wide awake. 3 verse 15 says, Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Now, lay down. It could mean he went back to sleep. Yes? It could mean he was absolutely fine 
and he just went back to bed. Except we need to read the rest of the verse. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Okay, so I would hazard a guess that Samuel didn't get a lot of sleep. But of course, Eli knows that Samuel has been spoken to. Let's pick it up. In verse 17 of chapter 3. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Oh, well, we could have just left it there. But no, 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 Eli pushes him. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. Oh, crumbs. The boss has said, tell me everything. So Samuel does. And when he did, this was Eli's response. Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do, what's that next phrase? What is good in his eyes. In his eyes. Oh, what does that remind us of? End of Judges. And they had no king and every did, everyone did that which was right in their eyes. Eli is saying, let him do what is good in his eyes. So, oh, this is a good move. You could read that. Again, we don't have YouTube for this. And I'm only saying that and sprinkling it in because it sometimes would be easy to see, like a documentary, what actually happened. And we've got to be very careful that we don't read into something. But nevertheless, we can explore it. You could say that was a bit fatalistic. Let him do what he wants. I don't think so. I think he's recognizing that God has actually spoken to this young man. The other thing I notice about that is when the scripture says he hid nothing from him, he told him everything. Yes? Without embellishment. Oh, what do I mean by that? Well, I think sometimes when people have prophetic words, they have some prophetic words from God, and then they add on a bit of interpretation of their own, an explanation, what it's made them think of, when actually the first bit was the bit. And sometimes, particularly in like words of interpretation, um, very often on the prayer team on Sunday mornings, we get words from God, and we have to be very careful that we give just a word. We can say what it made me think of, but this is what I think God wants to say. Stand up, speak up, shut up. Yes? Not a bad motto. When God asks you to speak, you stand up, you speak up, and then you shut up. And that's exactly what Samuel did. Now, the trouble was that the word that Eli had been given really went to the heart of his parenting, didn't it? He has not restrained them. And he lacks two critical qualities. One, a firm resolve. And two, corrective action. So you could say that he might have actually given up as a parent. How old is he at this point? We did this last week. Mm, 98. We'll come across that in a minute. So you could say, well, you know, 
He's done his time, really, but God still held him accountable. In accepting the validity of what Samuel has told him, two things are now happening. Samuel is hearing from God. Yes? As a child. Hearing clearly, hearing specifically, knowing exactly what the word was. Eli isn't. Now, I know that sounds terribly obvious, but you imagine if you've been the leader of a nation responsible for hearing from God and telling the people, and you suddenly realize, I can't hear anymore. He can't see. We know that. The eyes are very weak. And he now cannot hear. It was an awesome moment. It was a moment of change. I said last week, that the judges into 1 Samuel is a time of great change. Change is never easy. Samuel, as a child, did not realize he would be the last of Israel's judges and a massive figure in the transition of the nation from tribe leadership to monarchy. Probably just as well he didn't get that. But he was an agent of transformation. Came across this great quote, by Nick Candito. It's in your notes. Just have a look. Companies, he was um, a major CEO in America. Companies that change may survive, but companies that transform thrive. Change brings incremental or small-scale adaptations, whilst transformation brings great improvements that ripple through the future of an organization. I'm going to leave that with you to think about me, I want to be transformed by Almighty God. Not tiny little changes, a whole transformation. And Jesus Christ came, total transformation, yes? Okay, so God is calling Samuel. The end of chapter 3, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Those two verses are critical to an understanding of the person of Samuel. Why? What do they say? God was with Samuel. God Emmanuel. Yes, Chris. Attested. Um, basically, public affirmation. Everyone agrees. Thank you, Chris. Sorry. Um, God is with Samuel. We'll note a bit later in the story that God's glory will depart from the family line of Eli. But at this point, God's glory is clearly present with Samuel. Two, God let none of his words fall to the ground. That is an extraordinary comment on a person's life and ministry. I'll explore that in a little moment. From Dan to Beersheba, you ever come across that phrase? It's nine times in scripture. Dan was a city in the far north. Beersheba is the boundary of the south at that point. It's like us saying from John of Groats to Land's End. Yes? The let and breadth of the land agreed that Samuel was now God's man. Not Eli, but Samuel. Fourthly, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. Remember, Shiloh is Eli's home. Samuel spent his early years here. It was the place of the tabernacle, and it was because of Samuel 
that God continued to appear there. Yeah? Not Eli, Samuel. God reveals himself directly to Samuel through his word. Now that phrase, none of his words fell to the ground. I love the message translation of this. Samuel grew up, God was with him, and Samuel's prophetic record was flawless. Now any of you who study prophecy, that is an extraordinary concept. Because prophecy is one of the most difficult things to check. One of the tests of true prophecy in scripture is that what you say comes to pass. But many of the prophecies of certainly some of the major prophets happened after they were dead. So they would have died not knowing if the proof was there. So for that to be stated, that his prophetic record was flawless, his prophecies had to come true during his lifetime. Does that make sense? Yes? I would be ecstatic to have that kind of a reputation. Because it means that you choose your words very carefully. Yes? And I think Samuel learned very early on to choose his words. Let's have some points to ponder. How aware are you of the presence of God in your life? And would you know if you were far from God? The tragedy is, I think sometimes we drift. God doesn't move, but we drift from him. And sometimes we don't even know. And that's a scary prospect, isn't it? How carefully do you watch your words? I suppose you could say, it depends. Well, actually, that is what we lovingly call situation ethics. In the moment, I can be really good, or if I'm really provoked, we'll watch out. Yes? I think the reality is the situation shouldn't affect it. But it does, doesn't it? We say hurtful things. And I wonder, has God revealed himself, like he did to Samuel, to you through his word recently? Not just, oh, well, I read this in my quiet time and it was nice. Has it impacted you? Have you done something about it? God's word is living, breathing, a two-edged sword, and we need to treat it as such. Okay. Hophni and Phineas. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. We need to have a look at these two lads. It is an extraordinary thing. Turn to chapter 4, if you're not already there. We need to read the whole chapter. It's not long. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer. Oh, an interesting little word. We'll come back to that in a bit. And the Philistines at Aphek. They're only actually a couple of miles apart, these two camps. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. That's not good. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Okay, who are they blaming? This is all God's fault. 
Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Whoa, that's some shout. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Oh, great warrior race the Philistines are scared. What do they say? A god has come into the camp. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. So far, okay, but then look. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They, oh, gods, plural? Uh-oh, here we go. They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. So the reputation has gone before everybody. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So in a moment, the whole mood of the Philistines has changed. From fear to huge motivation. Come on, guys, we've got to do something. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. So now I've got 34,000 men gone. The Ark of the God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 12. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn, dust on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching Bearing in mind his eyesight's very poor, but he still can watch. Because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he couldn't see. And he told Eli, I've just come from the battle. I fled this very day. What happened, my son, said Eli. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled from before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and heavy. He'd led Israel for 40 years. As a footnote almost, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod literally means no glory. Um, because of the capture of the ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Oh, my goodness. Very briefly, there's a huge amount. Israel is now puffed up with its own self-importance. God is with us. Nothing can happen to us. However, 
When the commanders come back and say, you know, this is all God's fault. Why did this happen? They had no concept of their own sin before God. Now, Ebenezer was the first place that they attacked, and we'll need to come back to that. That's an important word for them. And how are they treating the Ark of the Covenant? A bit like a good luck charm, isn't it? Let's, let's get the ark, stick it in the middle, and then we'll be fine. We'll be fine. They didn't recognize its importance. The Philistines certainly did. At least they revered it as a symbol of God's power and holiness. Why? Or why did God ensure that Hophni and Phinehas died? Well, it was almost like the final insult. They brought the ark of the covenant out of the Holy of Holies without permission. It should never have been moved. The fact that they were both killed on the same day is a direct fulfillment of that first prophecy that we read last week in 1 Samuel 2. And this huge thing about Phineas' wife. She goes into this extraordinary, almost catadonic state. She wanted nothing to do with a new baby. She's in triple trauma. Father-in-law, her husband, her brother-in-law, all died. But what she grieves is not them, it's the ark. She grieves that that has gone. That battle at Afek should never have happened. If they had been true to God, I don't think it would have happened. The different perceptions of the ark of the covenant made it a ridiculous situation that the Philistines now capture this trophy which should never have been on the battlefield in the first place. Again, the fulfillment comes through. The trauma she suffered. She ached for the ark. Eli ached for the ark so badly that he fell, falls down dead when he realizes it's been captured. He knows what's going on. Points to ponder. It's very easy, though, to criticize Israel for not recognizing that the glory of the Lord has departed. They thought, God's with us. End of. But of course, we have to have a relationship with God that is according to his word, not according to our ideas of whether or not we wear a good luck charm. I wonder if there's been times in your life where you've had a dry season and you may feel that God has departed from you. They are very real. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, sometimes life is dry. There's a beautiful song I've been listening to recently. Sometimes it takes a mountain. Sometimes a troubled sea. Sometimes it takes a desert to get a hold of me. But your love is so much stronger than whatever troubles me. Sometimes it takes a mountain to trust you and believe. And sometimes it's the hardest times in our lives that force us to think, where am I in relation to God? Not where is God in relation to me, because he's always with you. Where am I in relation to him? So how can we ensure that God's glory stays in us? The New Testament teaches us we have this treasure in earthen vessels, but how can we make sure it stays that way? Not easy to ponder, is it? So you better go and have a coffee. Off you go.
your notes, which you will get at the end of tonight. Hang on. Uh, you okay, Evie? Good. Huge thanks to the cafe staff for doing the lunch, the drinks, I mean. Bringing them in on the trolley is a genius idea. Okay. In your notes, um, I appreciate you can't really see hugely, but you've got this in your notes. When I say Dan to be a Sheba, right, can you see the little dot? Okay, here's Dan. Here's Beersheba. So at the point we're talking about, that was the northern boundary. This is the southern boundary. Now, this is a map I may come back to later on in the series. This boundary here, yeah, is what they held under David. Look how much more land he's acquired. Under Samuel's time, it just went from there to there. But the Philistines, this warrior race, see this bit here. So in comparison, you think, that's not very big, is it? Oh, you don't have to be big to have a big impact, do you? No. Chapter 5. Again, a short one. Let's read it together. If you can stand the sound of my voice. Chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Lord... They took it from Ebenezer, where the battle was, to Ashdod, one of the five cities of Philistia. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Yay! I like that. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off. I don't think that was an accident. Not just the falling down bit, but the head and the hands. I think God did this, and he's actually saying... Your thinking about idols is going to be cut off and he won't be able to do anything. That's something for you to think about. His head and his hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priest of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. You can imagine. There's nothing there at this point, but for time immemorial, they come up to their temple and they do... I'm not stepping on the threshold because that's where it all fell. So you've got a lot of superstition going on. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and inflicted them with tumours. means exactly what it says. Tumours like we know today. Life-threatening. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and Dagon our God, upon Dagon our God. So they recognizes that God of the Hebrews is doing something to Dagon. Now that's actually speaking quite importantly of their understanding of who God really was, yes? So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? 
Right, where's Garth? Garth is not quite on that map. Okay. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Garth were the five major cities. So they moved the Ark of the God of Israel. But after they'd moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city. So now Garth is in trouble. Throwing it into a great panic, he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. I think that would be my reaction too, wouldn't you? Yeah. So they called together the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Oh my goodness. They are playing ping pong with the ark. Or maybe I should rephrase that. They're playing hot potato with the ark. Yes? So it's gone from this trophy, this good luck charm, to something nobody wants. But hey, it's a trophy of war. But nobody wants it. But it's a trophy of war. But no. So you can see, they're passing it round like a hot potato. Now, intriguingly, they believed that the Ark of the Covenant was itself a god. What do they say? A god has come into the camp. The ark is moving around a lot. This map is also in your notes. So it's come from Shiloh, where Hophni and Phineas have taken it, to the battle, Ebenezer and Afik, moved to Ashdod, moved to Gath, moved to Ekron. And this is the point where it gets really quite interesting. The Philistine leaders are very, very panicky now. I think you would be if you thought that this one object was causing havoc wherever you went. They have an interesting time. How long do you think it was that they tolerated this ping-pong hot potato? If it had been you and you knew it was the ark, how long would you let it stay? Be gone by the end of play, yes? Look at the 6 verse 1. When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months. They've had seven months. And they thought it was plague. Now remember that word, it'll come into its own in a moment. And they knew they had to get it out of Philistine territory, but back into Israel territory. But how do you do that without causing more damage? This is what they do. They've already called for the leaders, saying, what do we do? This time they try a slightly different tack. The Philistines called, I'm still in verse 2 of chapter 6. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Same question, but to a different group of people. They're now thinking, 
hang on, maybe we need a religious approach. Well, okay. Tell us how we should send it back to its place. Now listen to this. This is extraordinary. The priests and the diviners, they answered, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send him? And they replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats. Now, hang on a minute. What? Five gold tumors and five gold rats. There is a lot of evidence in certain Eastern cultures that when somebody had a problem, for example, if they were deaf, that they would bring a precious metal object shaped like an ear and offer it. So they looked at the various parts of the body that were a problem, fashioned a small model of them as if to say, God, I'm deaf. Oh, and by the way, if you don't know what that means, let me show you. (laughs) If you look at commentaries, it happened a lot. It really did happen a lot. But it's extraordinary when... We don't know, and I I bow to the medics among us, how much surgery was going on at this time. So what kind of tumours would they fashion? I don't know. Whatever it was, they did something which to them was representative of a tumour. But the rats? What's that all about? Come on, you history buff, what do you know about rats? They are supposed to be a cause of bubonic plague. It is questioned, but the assumption is that where there are outbreaks of rats, you're probably going to get some form of plague. So basically what they're doing, we know about the tumours, we think it's the rats, let's cover all bases, and we'll send some offerings in gold as a guilt offering. I'm not sure that's actually what they meant it to be. Make models of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and pay honour to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when he treated them harshly? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? These are priests and diviners, so-called holy men. They're giving some really interesting advice here, aren't they? But this is interesting. Verse 7. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, which was a priestly town, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. What is going on? This has intrigued me. (laughs) I'm sure those of you who know me well know that this would intrigue me. Why the detail about Nursing cows. Yes, two cows that have calved. 
Pardon? Good girl, and they would normally go straight back to their cars. Yes? They've never been yoked, so they don't know how to pull a cart. Okay. These men are saying, okay, this is the theory. If we hitch the cart to these cows and they go away from us, we'll watch it and let's see what happens. Let's turn them loose. Okay, number one. If the cows don't move at all, or if they go to their calves, it's proof that the God of Israel wasn't in control of anything, and therefore we've got nothing to fear. What's the likelihood of that happening, of them going back to the calves? Pretty high, yeah? So basically, they are skewing the odds in their favor. Yes? As if it's a proof. Oh, I've heard people talk about Gideon's fleece in the most extraordinary way. If I do this and God does that, then it proves this. I've had friends when I grew up as a teenager in Wales say, God, if it rains tomorrow, I know he's the one. (laughs) You're in Wales. (laughs) It's always going to rain tomorrow. It's like saying at the moment, if it snows in Scotland, they are skewing the situation to their advantage. If the cows meandered all over without any sense of direction, same proof. They thought they're going to head for the calves, it's the natural things to do, and that'll be fine. We've done our bit. We are proved right. Very dodgy ground. Then they had to send the tumours and the rats as gold shapes. That's not a guilt offering. That's an appeasement gift. They're trying to appease the God of Israel. Look, we didn't mean it. We didn't mean it. Go on, go on, have it. Go on. We're fine. Go on. No. If the cows just wandered around a bit or went back to the calves... We can always get the gold back. We tried, but hey, it's not in our hands. Oh, have you ever had that kind of an approach from somebody? I did my best, nothing to do with me. Mm. If, however, the cows go over the border into Israel, the Lord is obviously appeased, and if he's appeased, he won't send us any more plagues. So we're in a win-win situation. Okay? Now, the cows had never drawn a cart before. So you can imagine how, what? What are you saying? What's this thing on my back? Everything in this scenario says the cows are not going anywhere. Yeah? However, they had considered without God in this equation. God guided the cows. He kept them with the cart. He kept the cow's attention on the right road. They went straight to Beth Shemesh, which was an Israelite priestly city. He overcame their natural desire to go back to their calves, and he brought them back to where the ark should have been. And the Philistines are watching. Oh, we didn't expect that. 
Yeah, I'll bet. Interesting, though. If you go on, let's, let's actually see what happens. Verse 12. The cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh. I love that little word. Straight. They didn't hang around at the local service stations. They went straight there. They turned not to the right or to the left, just in case you hadn't got the idea of what straight means. <laughs> the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in their valley. The last thing they expected was what happened next. When they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. I'm not surprised. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. Who told the cows when to stop? There's so many bits in this that I find fascinating. And they stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Good response. Yes? A, they're not going to take anything that belongs to a Philistine. They burned it. Yes? And they offered the cows. Interesting. In their haste, they forgot Leviticus 1.3, which is that you should only sacrifice male cows or bulls. Yes? They were so excited, they just ignored that. They just sacrificed them anyway. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord. Good move. The Levites were allowed to do that. Together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered the offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw this, they watched it, and then they returned home. Not surprised. Okay? Now, we need to pick it up at verse 19. It didn't quite end as well as they'd hoped. God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they had what? Looked into the ark of the Lord. Isn't that a bit harsh? Possibly. Oh yeah, I know I was going to say about that. The people mourned because of the heavy blow. But then they said, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, I think they had a bit of a wake-up call. Let me go back and just show you a few things. Dagon, we only have representations from carvings, but there's this concept that he was somehow a fish god. The name sometimes means fish, um, and fish can breed very quickly. So this idea, this concept, was that the worship of Dagon was very spreadable, shall I say. It, it breed. It's an ugly-looking thing. Some people have, have made them. The idols look more like mermen. Um, don't know if you can see that very well. This is a representation of that's the Ark of the Covenant here, and this is the idea. This idol with a fish tail, with its head there and its hands somewhere else. Yeah. The idol is flat on his face. Remember, and they had to go back to Philistia, recognizing that Dagon is actually the one who has to bow to the ark that they've just sent back with two cows. There they are. 
a lovely picture of them. I think that's great. Yeah, these two cows who look so placid with the ark somehow cobbled together on this cart and they sent off and off they go. Why did God allow 70 men to die just for looking into the ark? Numbers 4.20 tells us that this is expressly forbidden. Once God closed the ark, got the mercy seat and the cherubim, that's it. Only Levites could move the ark and God would not allow people to come into his presence lightly. There, there is a fine line, isn't there, between the ark as the good luck charm and the ark as, well, hey, it's back. Let's make a cue to go and have a look. It was the disrespect thing. He didn't want a cycle of disrespect, disobedience and defeat to start all over again. This is what happened back in Judges. Yeah? God said, no, 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 no. And by ignoring such presumption, the nation was in danger of ignoring God once more. So it's come back, but they've made it a media circus. Oh, does that resonate? Yeah. We need to come before God with holy reverence. I asked you the question before coffee. How can you ensure that the glory of God stays within you? stays within the churches you represent. I believe it is a holy reverence for God, for his word, and for his ways. And I fear that without getting political, because I am completely apolitical, our nation needs it more than ever. I, for one, am desperately sad and crying out in intercession for the knife crime that's going on in London. It's just going on and on and on. Where is the respect for life? Where is the respect for life? Now, the ark is finally taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Okay, so it's been around and around hot potato in Philistia, and it ends up at Kiriath-Jerim, which is very near Jerusalem and not too far from Ramah. There's Ebenezer where the whole jolly thing started. So Ramah and Gilgal and Mizpah are three of the areas, and Shiloh, where Samuel's going to have a huge effect. But the ark is now here, and we need to just figure out a bit about this. Chapter 7. Whiz through this. Remember I said that the... The Ark of the Covenant was in Philistine territory for how many months? Seven. Seven. Six verse 21, the very end. They sent messengers to the people of Kirath-Jerim, saying, that's after these 70 men have died. The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a little bit of... Okay, so the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. But look at how they protected it. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. Nobody is going to touch the Ark until they figure out what to do next. Verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the Ark remained at Kirithim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought the Lord. 
Samuel takes this opportunity to bring the nation to a place of repentance. We've got into trouble before. You've had 20 years of mourning what has been. They sought God. It's not a bad position to be in. Now, maybe they felt God had abandoned them. The ark has been hidden, essentially, for 20 years. Just as an aside, later on in Samuel, we realize that Saul would reestablish the tabernacle in his time, because he's got some tabernacle furniture. But the ark was hidden for 20 years. Samuel, who by now is fully grown, bear in mind, yeah, there's a 20-year gap, challenges the nation to repent. So they gather, in verse 6, at Mizpah. And he literally lays it on the line. If we're going to get right with God, this is what you do. They had confession, they had fasting. Samuel is now regarded as the leader of the whole nation, not just this little area that he's been looking at. And he sacrifices a burnt offering. The whole thing is coming full circle. If we're going to sacrifice, let's do it properly. If we're going to sacrifice, we're going to do it together. And if we're going to sacrifice, it's going to be a whole burnt offering, symbolizing the totality of our repentance. Yeah? I think a time is coming, and I know it is for me, where we have to seriously think, am I totally sold out for God? Or am I just sort of playing around a bit? Samuel had no qualms whatsoever in calling the whole nation to repent before God. Verse 9, Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering. Look at the tiny words of scripture. Whole burnt offering. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. Interestingly enough, we've had 20 years of quiet and guess who's turning up? Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, oh, what did God do? The Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines. That's how God answered. Right in the middle of everything, he thunders. And he threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Beth Car. It's the first battle they've won for decades. And it's on the strength of their turnaround of heart. They repented, they got it right, they prayed, a proper sacrifice with a proper priest, God answers. If you do things in God's way, God answers. Do you believe that? Yeah? Then, verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named the stone Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Oh, I could preach on that for ages. 
Sometimes we need to take a emotional stone. I know some people who actually have found beautiful stones on a beach or something, and they draw on it, Ebenezer, just to remind them, God has helped us before. He's still the same God, and he will help us again. But Ebenezer was also the place that they lost the first battle. Do you remember? Right at the beginning of this talk, four years ago? What is Samuel doing by calling a stone Ebenezer? Well, what he's saying is sometimes God will take you back to a place of defeat to help you realize how great the victory now is. Oh, I got some amens for that. And if the Lord doesn't help us, we're in big trouble. But we can rely on an almighty God to help us in the times of greatest trouble. Verse 13, the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again under Samuel. They're going to crop up again in the series. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Garth that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Once they got it right, God started restoring. He started restoring ground they thought they'd lost. Oh, can I get an amen for that? Yeah. Things that you fear are lost to you, God is in the business of restoring. Now, Um, well it says that some of them died of the tumours but some of them I think still had the tumours but didn't necessarily die of them yeah but they were still there now just a few final points Samuel now decides that what he wants to do is this circuit He's regarded as a leader of the length and breadth of the nation, but he sets up this thing, Bethel, Mizpah, Ramah, Gilgal, right? Ramah has now become his new home, not Shiloh. I think there are too many memories at Shiloh. So he goes to Ramah, and he goes there, 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 back again, establishing the first circuit preaching. Remember? Sorry, I keep harping back to Judges. When we did Deborah, she sat under a tree and everyone came to her. Samuel goes out to the people, which actually is not a bad thing to do. Verse 17 of chapter 7. Oh, sorry, verse 16. From year to year, he went on the circuit, Bethel, Gilgal, Milpah, judging Israel in those But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar to the Lord. I love this. Public leadership needs always to have private devotion. I am very prone to this. Sometimes my quiet times become sermon preparation times. I have the kind of mind that reads the scripture and is often a three-pointer. And I have to be very careful that my quiet times is separate. 
Yeah, he was a great public leader, but he made sure that his own quiet time was still rock solid. Why? Because he sets up his own personal altar to God at his own home. Now, great. Um, <laughs> this sounds a very facetious comment. I could, and occasionally do, go to the gym, but I could also put a treadmill in my kitchen. How more likely am I to use it if it's close to home? Yeah. Yeah? It's a really silly illustration. But he made sure that he had an altar in his own home that was totally dedicated to God. I know I have friends who have a prayer chair. Nothing magical about the chair, but it's the consecration of the time and the space. That when they sit in that chair... This is where I do business with God. Maybe it's something you can think about. Is there a space you could go to, maybe that's in your own home, that is dedicated to God? Now, sometimes, I know, my John, he will go off um, to Holland-on-Sea, which is a little beach near Clacton. It's very, very small, so small that most people totally ignore it. But it's got a nice little cafe, and he goes, and he'll spend a day with God his Bible, and a notebook. It's not a bad discipline. If he does hit it at home, he sees all of the jobs that he needs to do. But if he goes away, he's all right. But for some people, if you have somewhere that you could set up as your own personal altar at home, you might like to think about that. I'm getting a few nods, so it's not off the wall. He ensured that he walked the walk as well as talk the talk. But interesting how this wonderful man of God was able to bring a whole nation to repentance. He didn't pull his punches. Read chapter 7 very carefully in chapter 6. I'm sure you already have. But he's just laying it on the line. He doesn't pull any punches. Points to ponder. I wonder if since becoming a Christian, has God ever asked you to repent? For some of you, it might be, yeah, all the time. For some of you, it might be, well, yeah, maybe. All the time, person. Okay. I don't want a confession. It's okay, Emma, you're fine. (laughs) How does God want us to repent? We can talk to a person who is becoming a Christian. You know, you have to turn around and do this. But what if God points the finger at us and says, um, Daughter, I think we need a chat. What I find, practically speaking, is that if I am bombarded with a list of things I've done wrong, that's not God. That's condemnation of the enemy. The enemy will always have a list. It has been my experience that when God convicts, he does things one at a time. Isn't he gracious? So if you get to a thing, I think... Yep, the Lord's Prayer is a very, very good starting point. Yeah, 
I think what the point Chris has made, it's actually very straightforward to repent. And you don't have to be in a so-called sacred space to do it. The point I'm also making is that God will sometimes ask us to do it. And if he asks us, it's a good idea to do it. It won't take long, necessarily, but it does take a change of heart to do it. How long, I wonder, would it take you to repent once God asks you? Ooh, I think I'd better leave you to ponder that. Okay, final thoughts. I wonder, can God count us as faithful? If somebody said, oh, that, you know, that Nadia, you know, um, the one who's faithful, would that be the first thing? Yes, my love, it would for me. She's faithful. I'll tell you what, in a world of broken promises, dare one use the B word, Brexit <coughs> contracts, I know my husband and his, his place of work have been negotiating, and I know you won't mind me telling you this, a particular contract, which they thought they had, and it was all straightforward and going swimmingly. And then last week, they said, oh, by the way, it's being subcontracted to another group. And they sent them their contract. Well, one of their directors spent virtually a whole day trying to read this jolly thing, and deciding that actually it was incredibly dangerous, all of the things they wanted the company to do. And they were at the point of saying, actually, we can't accept this contract because it's ridiculous, and that's not how we do business. And then suddenly, yesterday, it was a case of um, the original group, which are a very internationally renowned group, came back and said, ever so sorry about that. We've actually had to sack them. Can we go back to the first one? You've got to be so careful. There are people out there who are not faithful. And if you are, it will stand out like a sore thumb. What does genuine dedication to God look like? Hard work. work. That's a very good answer, Chris. Samuel's mentor was Eli. I think I'm, over the course of this, I'm kind of rethinking Eli a bit. He was a mentor. He did guide him. He did help him understand the voice of God. And he looked after him for a while. He wasn't a brilliant parent. But there were some elements of his life which are very important to acknowledge were good. I wonder how much of Samuel's leadership was influenced by what Eli did or did not do. Ah, you're preempting next session. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, we'll figure out what kind of a parent Samuel was next week because we're going to do a tiny bit more on him. Ah, godly mother. Yeah, who else had a godly mother in scriptures? New Testament, a young guy? John the Baptist, yep. Timothy had a good mother. So to all mothers out there, keep going, keep going. Did Samuel follow the lead of his mentor? Partly. I think Samuel learned wisdom to know which bits to take on board and which to let go. 
Okay, one thing. We've got about three minutes. Anybody got a one thing that they can do in a very short sentence? Yes. 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 Okay, just for the sake of the recording, if I can just summarize that very quickly. Great point, Graham, is that the Ebenezer stone reminded them not just of past victories or past defeats and present and future ones. God is a God of the eternal now. Yeah, he will help us in whatever frame we're at. Yeah. One more thing? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. God is, God is always a God of restoration. Yeah, I will restore the ease that the locusts have taken away. Beautiful passage. One more? Nadia. Never take God for granted. Yeah. And don't look at an object and objectify it rather than focus on God. Yeah. Even if that it is your Bible, it's good to have, but you still need the relationship directly with him. Have you enjoyed this morning? Okay. Look forward to seeing you next week. Your homework for next week is to try and go through chapter 8 through to 12. I appreciate that I'm asking you to kind of and carry one. So I said up to eight this week, but we will be focusing on from eight. So you'll have read it a couple of times, won't you? Eight through to 12, verse five for next week. I have notes. Maria, could you do my monitor bit and go and hand those out? If anyone